Hi listeners, and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Alina Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez, who every once in a while, he will add his two cents in, but it's kind of rare. This is a podcast where I will bring you stories of murders, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. And in this week's episode, our first episode ever, I will be telling you the story of the man that was charged, convicted, sentenced, and executed for his crime in a split second. This is the story of James Huberty and the San Isidro McDonald's Massacre. On July 18, 1984, at around 3.40 p.m., the shooting began and it would last an hour and 17 minutes. James Huberty shot and killed 21 people while injuring 19 others before he was fatally shot by SWAT. Now let me tell you a little bit about James Huberty and the events leading up to the massacre. James was born on October 11, 1942 in Canton, Ohio. When James was three years old, he contracted polio, which left him with walking difficulties. And in 1962, he would attend Malone College, where he would later earn a bachelor's degree in sociology. After attending the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science, James earned a license for embalming, but he wouldn't pursue a job as an embalmer. While attending school, he met and married a woman named Etna, and they would be married by 1965. James and Anna would go on and have two girls named Zelia and Cassandra. During that time, they lived in Massillon, Ohio. During this time, James had been working as a funeral home undertaker, but he would also have to have hold down a number of other jobs that he would come to lose rather quickly. After a fire completely demolished their residence in Massillon, Ohio, the family would move to James' hometown of Canton where he would later become a welder there. Both James and Anna had displayed signs of domestic violence. For example, one time Anna attempted to instruct Celia on how to physically assault a classmate during a birthday party, and later threatened the same classmate's mother with a 9mm pistol. Anna would get arrested for the act, however the pistol was never confiscated. Now fast forward to a different incident where James threatened to shoot a neighbor's dog after the dog had relieved itself in his lawn. Then in a separate incident, it was reported that James killed the family dog. Now due to all these incidents, the the local police were very familiar with this family. During this time, James began to develop beliefs that bankers were manipulating the Federal Reserve System, intentionally bankrupting the U.S. and breaking down society. James would also go on and blame the failures of numerous businesses and Soviet aggression for the increasingly strict federal government regulations. You know, this guy sounds really paranoid. (laughs) Okay, so if you thought he was paranoid because of that, get this. As a result from all of this, James would become a survivalist, purchasing thousands of dollars of non-perishable food and six firearms as preparations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I think it's important to know that James would also threaten to shoot any random person if he was ever fired from his job. Wait, threaten? Who would he threaten? Anybody. Like his employer? Anybody. Like, cross me, fire me, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> okay. If you remember, as I stated earlier, it is reported that James had difficulties holding down a job. So it's sorely after losing yet another job that he attempted to commit suicide. However, Edna would stop him from doing so. On September of 1983, a year before the murders, James would suffer from a motorcycle accident that would leave his left arm twitching uncontrollably due to his childhood polio, which had been aggravated by the accident. Because of the result of that accident, James would be forced to resign from his job as a welder. And it is here that it's reported that later James would experience legal problems due to the motorcycle accident, which would then force the family to move to Tijuana. Wait a second. Where were they before? They were in San Diego. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes more sense. I thought it was like in Ohio. So then they just hopped the border. Okay. Well, they didn't hop it, but yes. Okay, but later they would move back to San Diego because James couldn't hold down a job in Tijuana. So James would come back to San Diego and become a security guard, but then he would be dismissed two weeks prior to the murders. It was reported that James called a mental health center asking for help the day prior to the murders. However, his call would go unanswered. The day of the murders, it is said that James had gone to court for a traffic violation. After he left the courthouse, it's reported that James, along with his wife and his two daughters, would go have lunch at a McDonald's in Claremont. And after eating at the McDonald's, they would decide to make a sudden decision to go to the San Diego Zoo. Sounds like a pleasant day. You know, it's kind of interesting that you say that because I read when I was doing my research that one of the, I don't know what they're called, the, the court officers, the mm -hmm. like the court people, like later on after everything went down, um, they interviewed him and they asked about James' demeanor and how he was in court. And I guess he had been in court all day. Like it's one of those, I mean, I don't know, I've never gone to traffic ticket before knock on wood so i've never had to go to it's kind of surprising right isn't it but Sorry. anyway so um it was said that he had been waiting for a long time and he was like the last person to go up there and like fight his traffic court ticket or whatever but they said that he was like the nicest calmest guy and that they were shocked because they're like he should have had a miserable day like he had been waiting for his turn all day so it's i don't know that's just like a little fun fact when you say like oh it sounds like a nice day yeah apparently he was having a nice day but anyway so wow. um <laughs> yeah so fun fact everybody it is said that while walking around the zoo and looking around at the animals that james would make a comment to his wife about society had its chance Boys. so he's walking around the zoo mm -hmm. Looking at lions, tigers, and bears. Right. And he just says, society had its chance. Yes. 
So I don't know. I did my research and that was like the one thing that stuck out. So I, I don't know how the conversation went down exactly, but I couldn't find anything where like my number one question is, Okay, what was her response to that? Yeah, I mean, this one <laughs> but, probably married for a while. Like probably the, just ignores him when he says stuff like that. I, don't know. I mean, I guess, right? But you have to think, like, obviously she was trying to teach her daughter something at a birthday. You know what I mean? Like, they're both just not all there in the head. But, okay, so <laughs> once it would return back home, it gets better. Not really better. Once returning back home, it would later be reported that James would gather his firearms, which consisted of a 9mm Uzi semi-automatic, a Winchester pump-action 12-gauge shotgun, and a 9mm Browning semi-automatic pistol. Before leaving his house, it has been said that James would look at his wife one last time and state that he was going hunting for humans. And he would not be back. James would get into his car, drive about a block to the McDonald's on San Isidro Boulevard. He lived that close to the McDonald's? Oh, yeah. It was extremely close. Mm. Um, witnesses would see James walk into the McDonald's with his guns on display. The first 911 call is made at 3.40 p.m. And Officer Miguel Rosario was the first responding officer. The call comes in, and it's about a little girl who had been shot and taken to the post office next to the McDonald's. And this is where there's a lot of controversy around the time of events and how long it took police officers, including SWAT, to show up. Okay, so... According to some people, it's said that the police were sent to the wrong McDonald's from the very beginning, which would, in return, delay the aid of those victims that had already been shot and might still be alive if it wasn't for the lack of communication between law enforcement channels. Which later law enforcement personnel would state that they did everything how they, they should have on that day. How far away is that McDonald's? Is it really that close by? So I saw this documentary on TV and um, they actually, they interviewed Miguel and they asked him that question and he said that it took him, I guess from the moment, I don't know how, but from the moment he realized it was the wrong McDonald's, um, it took him like three to five minutes. It wasn't long at all, but Mm, I guess when you're, Obviously, when you're dealing with, like, life and death situations, every second yeah, counts. Every second counts. So, right. So, even, like, three to five minutes, that can seem an eternity, which, obviously, it did for these victims. Maria Leticia Rivera is one of the victims and survivors of that day. She was eating at the McDonald's with her two young daughters. She remembers sitting inside of the restaurant right by the play area that was located outside. When all of a sudden, she sees the gunman enter through the door on her left, and he begins to shoot. As soon as that happens, Maria runs to get her other daughter from the outside play area, leaving 
her second daughter on the table. Oh my god, can you imagine the panic? Right? That's horrible. But once Maria grabs her daughter from outside, she runs back inside, grabs both of her daughters, and they take cover under the table. Wendy Flanagan was an employee at the McDonald's, and she would describe how the shooter had a radio. And at first she thought that maybe he was communicating with somebody else, or maybe she was like listening to see if cops were coming. But get this, later after the fact, she would realize that he was actually the whole time he was playing music from that radio. What kind of music is he playing? I I don't know. I didn't see. It. I didn't see it. I I don't know what. I couldn't find that. I didn't actually Google it. But Keith Thomas was another one of the victims that was there, and he was 12 years old at the time. And Keith was shot in both arms by the shooter. However, he wouldn't realize that he had been shot until much later. Keith was eating at the McDonald's with his best friend, Mateo, and his friend's father, Ronald Herrera. Ronald would take seven shots for Keith. And if it wasn't for Ronald's heroism that day, Keith might not be alive today. Now, Miguel Rosario was the first responding officer. Hold on, can I stop for a second? Yeah. You left me hanging with Maria Leticia Rivera's daughters mm-hmm. you said that she was a survivor did her daughter survive too the two daughters would survive the incident however unfortunately their father wouldn't so it was said in the documentary i saw that the dad apparently when the shooting started happening he tried to talk to huberty to try and talk him down and as a result from that he would get shot and he died, but the two daughters did survive along with her, obviously. Oh, it's so unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So, Miguel Rosario was the first responding officer at the scene. And he parks at the post office, which now remember the post office was located next to the McDonald's, and he had been dispatched to the post office because of the report of a little girl that had that somebody had taken them into the post office because of a gunshot wound now it's while miguel is getting out of his car and walking into the post office that he immediately realizes that something's wrong miguel starts to notice that there's people heading behind cars and looking towards the mcdonald's i mean is he hearing any gunshots No, he's just seeing pretty much people taking cover. Hmm. And it's at this exact moment that Miguel realizes that in a way he's kind of lucky because he looks over and he describes what he saw, which I'm going to play you a clip right now. And it's terrifying. Take a listen. Walking to the post office is when I first noticed something was wrong. People were hiding behind cars and they were looking toward the McDonald's. And uh, I was right in the middle of a lot and I looked over 
I lucked out. I really lucked out because when I looked over, the suspect was just coming out of the side door by the drive-thru. And that's the first time I saw him. And what got my attention was he had the long barrel Uzi um, held across his chest like this. Can you imagine the terror that he would have felt from seeing what Miguel saw? I mean, after all, it's under the impression that he's responding to a little girl that had been shot and then taken to a post office. He had no idea what was going on next door. And it's at this time that Miguel decides to call for backup. And it's now 410. And now it's been 30 minutes since the shooting began. Wow. You know what's kind of crazy? I think I read that usually these types of large massacre type shootings usually last about 10 minutes. Yeah. 10 minutes. I mean, obviously. You no, now 30 time, minutes have lapsed. It's a long time. These people getting shot at, hearing all these gunshots going and penetrating things around them. Right. So Albert Leos was a worker at the McDonald's and he recalls that on that day he didn't want to go to work. Instead, he wanted to call in sick, go hang out at the beach with his friends. Oh man, it sounds like me every day. <laughs> Should I go to work today? Well, you know, mm. you know what's interesting? So when I was doing my research for this, a lot of the workers on that day they all happened to say that. They all said that there was just something telling them not to go to work. Like they had, like whether it was hanging out with friends or whatever the occasion was. But okay, so take yourself back to your first job, right? And Target. how often would you have those thoughts? Oh, I don't, we're not talking about that. So um, Albert would debate whether going into work that day or not. But eventually, he would skip going to the beach with his friends, and he would go into work. Albert would witness the suspect walk into the restaurant and yell at everyone to get down to the floor. As he opened fire on everyone, not only would he fire at people, but he would shoot all around the restaurant. Albert remembers how loud it was inside of the, that McDonald's with bullets ricocheting off the stainless steel. Um, Albert also recalls that the shooter would reload for five to ten minutes and then begin to shoot people again. And he would recall that James would shoot people that were just laying there on the floor, whether they were moving or not. So in that documentary I saw, he would say how he couldn't even tell if those victims were plain dead or if they really were dead. But hmm. James didn't care like if they were moving or not. He just continued shooting at them. Um, now, while he was trying to reload, that's when people started to and run to the nearest exit that was by them and unfortunately those people would become Huberty's easy targets 
because as soon as he would see that, he would start shooting at those people. Now, Albert and Wendy were hiding in the kitchen with several other co-workers for about 30 to 40 minutes before the shooter would find them and open fire on them. While the shooter opens fire on them, another employee, Margarita Padilla, would grab Wendy and tell her to run. And she would instruct her to run to the rear exit, which happened to be the emergency exit. However, when Wendy would approach that emergency exit, it would be locked. And at that point, she would have no other choice than to hide in the small closet that is described to have been right next to the door. Um, however, she wasn't alone. She did have six other people with her. And part of those six people was a baby. So while they're hiding in that closet, they all of a sudden hear the closet door jiggle. And they're scared. I mean, they're trying to be quiet. And all of a sudden, they hear Albert's voice. Now, keep in mind, they were all hiding together. But then when Huberty would find them, they would all scatter. Um, and now when they're in the closet, Albert has made his way over to them. And while they're scared trying to figure out who's trying to open the door... That's when all of a sudden they hear Albert's voice say, please let me in. And again, Albert is an employee there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So when Wendy opens the door, Albert just collapsed on top of them. Albert had been shot by the shooter and he had to crawl all the way over to the closet where they were. the rest of them were hiding. It's said that he was in so much pain that he was hiding down on a piece of cloth just to keep quiet and try to keep everybody safe because they didn't want the shooter to hear them. Right. Yeah. Um, Now, keep in mind, like, there's six people in this tiny closet. I mean, it's a McDonald's. It's not... It's not a home or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I picture just this tiny closet now to have to sit there be quiet i'm sure that you know your emotions you're crying and then on top of it you have a baby like how do you keep a baby quiet especially with all the noise and everything right yeah because they did say how it was so loud in there because i guess right when the shooting started um a employee had just dropped a basket of fries so obviously when the shooting started Alarms were already going off from like, hey, it's time to pick up the basket. And so then what the beeping is, and you go to the director. Yeah, <laughs> it was just so loud with all kinds of different alarms going off, with the bullets ricocheting off the stainless steel. I mean, they would all describe it as extremely loud in there. Now this is where, once again, things are going to get a little sticky for law enforcement. Okay. It's said that at one point, Miguel did actually have a clear shot at the suspect, but he wouldn't take it. Why? 
Well, there's a lot of controversy around why he wouldn't take the shot. And from the research that I did, I I did read that he felt that the gun that he shot versus what James Huberty had, it was just, there was no way that he can do it. And he would take a lot of criticism for this, but... I mean, at the end of the day, police officers get put into the situation of life and death and they have to make a split decision. And it's easy for us being on the outside to judge them or say, I would have done it differently yeah, or why. That. Yeah, he should have done this. He should have done that. But in reality, there's just no way of us knowing until we get put into that position. I mean, maybe any one of us would have not taken the shot as well, yeah. you know? So that's where it's it's kind of hard to tell, you know, and it's, it's a very thin line, but you do have to believe that law enforcement, even though they didn't fully know the full situation, I'm sure that he still did everything that he could. And if he felt... I'm sure that if he felt like he could have taken that shot, he would have. Um, Actually, so, you have a clip of him talking about that. It's from the documentary you're referring to, 77 Minutes. Take a listen. He had the long barrel Uzi um, held across his chest like this, and he spotted me and shot at me. I would have been justified in shooting back, uh, but I was completely outgunned. I had a 38 caliber handgun. The best I could do was to take cover. I got behind a truck. He did his best to shoot uh, through the truck, around the truck, over the truck. So see, he describes how he even thought he was outgunned. So, you know, that's why I just, I don't think it's fair for any one of us to judge him or any law enforcement. Just, you know, we're just, we don't, we don't truly know. It's easy for us to judge them, but you have to believe that they are doing the best that they can in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be around 4.40 that said that SWAT arrives at the scene. They would immediately climb up to the roof of the post office because remember, the post office is right next door to the McDonald's, so it, it has that perfect view of the McDonald's and to what's going on. But they still don't know if it's a one shooter, multiple shooters, or a hostage situation. They don't even know that people are dead inside. So it's about 5.20 p.m. that SWAT takes the shot and shoots 41-year-old James Huberty through the heart, killing him. After SWAT takes the shot, law enforcement make their way inside of that McDonald's, still not knowing what's waiting for them inside. And I don't know if you got a chance to look at that crime scene video that I sent you. I did. It was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, it must have been horrible for law enforcement to get in there and see all those bodies just laying there, I mean, it is pretty impactful. And 
I don't recommend to anybody to Google it unless you can handle something like that. Um, you know, it, it, it was a really bad scene. Obviously, you do see a lot of kids and the parents and... It's you just, see it's, families. It's, yeah, like you families, see families. And it's parents just, trying to protect or right, their, their kids. Partners trying to hold each other. There is an image of a woman holding the face of her boyfriend or husband, significant other, mm-hmm. as they're lifeless on the ground. 21 people were killed inside of that restaurant. And 19 were wounded. The community couldn't understand how one shooter was able to control 175 police officers on that day. If you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover, you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com. Now, we truly love it and appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review and subscribe on to Apple Podcasts. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thank you for listening.